Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Everywhere, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Daniel Scheffler, and I have some strong feelings about travel. This is Everywhere. Weekly, you'll hear me talk about the travel commandments. And as much as commandments sound like a religious thing, in my context, they are not. They are, however, laced with a touch of ethics and a splash of moral imperative. But please take these with a large pinch of salt and then throw it over the wing of the plane or wherever. What they really are intended to do is to offer up a suggestion. So feel free to use them and add them to your travel life. For me, they've done wonders. You'll also notice my commandments on the positive. Thou shalt, opposed to the usual negative. So by all means, go forth and shalt away, and let's see what happens. This week, perhaps, thou shalt keep holy the high and low of travel. I hear the word luxury much too often in the travel world. Luxury experiences, luxury hotels, luxury linens, luxury beaches, luxury this, luxury that. The best, the finest, the most, the mostest. To me, somewhere between common sense and lunacy, we misappropriated this word luxury. And we now use it as a doorstop for pretty much everything. Luxury has lost its luster. And it's very much all of our fault. The word luxury originates from the words lust, and interestingly enough, lecherous. But it's now used to describe anything that vaguely resembles wealth or perceived affluence, or even just something that seems nice. But what most people don't realize is that the word is laden with so much more than just a new development of overly shiny condos in Mexico or Florida. Back in 2011, the BBC premiered a miniseries on the history of luxury and its ambiguous meaning. Cambridge University academic and host of the show Michael Scott said, Luxury isn't just a question of expensive and beautiful things for the rich and powerful. It feeds into ideas about democracy, patriotism and social harmony, as well as our values and our relationships with the divine. I'm taking divine as a Britishness and much less of a Christian theme there. The problem is luxury is just not special anymore. Real luxury isn't what the travel industry has force-fed us. Real luxury is personal, it's actually something truly special. It's understanding space, time, and freedom. Actually, stop. Listen to those three words roll over my tongue. Space, time, freedom. What does that mean to you? If you can find that somewhere in your deepest caverns, you've touched luxury, something money couldn't assist with and can't outright buy. We travel for those three things, not to be in opulence or splendor, because in the end that's immaterial to the full, I don't know, human experience. So yeah, like a hotel 
For instance, the Amanoi in Vietnam, up on these beautiful pink cliffs overlooking the East Sea, would never have been built if it wasn't for a giant monetary investment to get roads to this place. And yes, it takes an iconic hotel group with true imagination to show us how to find this space, time and freedom. And then note how cautious those starry-eyed leaders are of the word luxury. Yet again, few understand the power of this word, and the ones who do use it very wisely. So basically, I want to reclaim the word. I want to use it when it's truly a thing of, I don't know, great comfort or grandeur. Maybe the luxury police could come and check out its overuse and gently tap the knuckles of the overusers. Because that hotel and that experience and that spa, like it isn't luxury, it's just a room or a, I don't know, car ride or massage table with bad background music. Without the consciousness that people actually deserve more. Of course, luxury is personal. It's a feeling and you can anoint anything you'd like with it. But the word organic and artisanal, they've stopped meaning anything at all. I'm calling on you, Brooklyn. And that's why travel is better when you take it from high and low. If you always do it on the high, you're missing the real moments. From the ivory tower of your hotel and your black limo, you can't see the beauty that's right in front of you. But I'm not saying that you shouldn't stay at nice hotels, because I love a gorgeous hotel. But then come eat on the street, or stay on the street, I don't know, at an Airbnb or a tiny inn run by locals, and book one meal at that incredible Michelin star chef's restaurant. If we all use the word luxury less, perhaps then we'll be able to reclaim it, as I suggested, and only utter the word when things are really and truly luxurious for you. Like when you're on the road and that feeling of magic washes over you. You're not remembering the luxury, you're remembering the lessons, the stories, the people you've met. Because as it stands now, the word means nothing. And that's where the country of Estonia fits the bill perfectly. Estonia is this land of odd sagas and dizzying fables, some sultry and some truly tragic. The most northern of the less explored Baltics and one of the least populous countries in Europe is the continent's most serially underrated, I think. In Paris, I met Merit, a forest-born beautiful Estonian nymph who'd single-handedly stopped all the traffic around the Arc de Triomphe. I've seen it again and again. She told me these enchanting stories about her home country, and I was mesmerized. For a country that's the most tech in all of Europe, mythology and sharing of folk history is what locals just do. Instead of watching bad television or fixating on their smartphones, elders share stories like the child who came from an egg, or the classic the young man who would have liked to have his eyes opened. The real housewives have nothing on these stories. In fact, Estonian mythology dates back to pre-Christian times, and it's largely dotted in travelers' accounts or told to you by your great-grandmother, or of course in some runic song. Picture this, a Viking singing about giants and animistic beliefs. 
The world of Lord of the Rings feels so tame and dull after you spend some time with Estonian blood. Luckily, the old world prevails and it brings about a great touch of supernatural. And that's what I was seeking out. Determined to see the entire country and how its inhabitants differ from the rest of the world, I decided to drive from north to south, from east to west, and everywhere else I could possibly squeeze a tiny car through. The roads lapped me right up. With a post-recession glow, Estonia has managed to pull itself up by its proverbial bootstraps and renew the country's appeal through infrastructure updates, a new entrepreneurial visa program, and keeping it all under wraps for the diehards willing to venture beyond stuffy Paris and already seen Budapest, and really just being the final frontier of unexplored Europe. It has its advantages. The country is easily crisscrossed, and as it's mostly flat, in the good sense, the allure lies not in the overt scenery from the freeways, but it's revealed at every little town donning little steeples, cobbled streets, and these soft surrounding meadows. It's understandable if you want to just jump out of the car and go lie in these fields with the farm animals around you, napping, or escaping, if you will. It's that kind of place. Your weirdness and firm attachment to nature will make you fit right in. Tallinn, the country's capital, is where I commenced my explorations. After a plush night of deep sleep at this gorgeous hotel, a former wartime post office, I contemplated Estonia's resistance during World War I and their second independence after the wreckage of the Soviet Union. And today, Russia's waiting on their doorstep. I wonder what Nabokov would say about this little tryst. So it makes sense to me that the country that invented Skype sees communication and the internet as the ultimate delivery of their independence. In fact, they often commend it for being one of the most wired countries in Europe. Take that, Russia. Okay, but enough of this. The open road called. Cue the opening scene from Cruel Intentions. Driving along the northern coastlines of Estonia with Finland just in the distance across the sea, the bottomless forests consumed me. Locals call these forests traveling forests, as they believe that when people are cruel in some place, the forests will leave the area. The smell of briny ocean air mixed with deep scents from pine trees is so unique and filtered into my car and right into my mind. It should have probably been bottled by some chic French perfumer if they haven't already done that, because in a world of stereotypical smells, this one felt worth spraying behind my knees and my ears. I very seldom saw people along the roads walking by, and only in the many petite towns where stopping for a rhubarb pie or swig of kefir, which they call peem, some smiling, shy residents appeared. The car found this comfortable pace as I headed with no agenda through villages and villages that could easily carpool their entire population. The radio loved traditional music for some reason, and so this tribal fantasia overtook the airwaves. I was entranced. It was magic. Estonians are beautiful and big-eyed, homely people. And as I got out in these small villages, call them hamlets, 
deep inside the forest, like Vihula, I saw how people lived here, comfortably with fresh produce picked from the forests, and the family all around for connecting, all the time. Most homes have a sauna, a nearby neighbor told me, and we started to chat about Estonia and all its many secrets. I, of course, love secrets, so I was eagerly leaning in to hear it all. I've decided to hold some of these to keep you at the edge of your seat for now. The holder of secrets guided me to a nearby bog called Viruraba, which is a mire that accumulates peat and moss and creates this incredible ecosystem like nothing on the planet. How appropriate, of course, it's Estonia. Creatures of the Yore and its forest seem to watch from the trees as I explore this strange marsh-like water. Alikara Vitsaya, the Estonian healing elf of the springs, or Suvana, the Estonian guardian spirit of the wetlands, might be on sun lounges nearby. Estonia's just like that. Just when you don't expect it, a strange ecosystem or mythical creature or abandoned manor house or sometimes a sort of operational lighthouse will wink at you. And nowhere and nobody has mentioned the word luxury to me. The custom here is to stop for coffee and fishing, with big signs on every road indicating where this can be best done. It did take me a while to figure out what these signs meant. Fish with coffee has never been first on my sort of palette of fancy. I decided to venture further south, to explore the Setoma district, and en route, I found locals happily sitting at a rest stop with a hot drink in hand, perhaps hoping for the catch of the day. Come on, you cannot possibly slow down more than this. And if you need of more of a substantial rest stop, Estonia has this culture of courts or beer halls that are located every couple of miles. Locals meet here from all over the country on their way somewhere to laugh and share local delicacies like smoked or pickled herring and a potato salad with, of course, deer sausages. A few of these respites and you can get totally drunk, overly fed, and with a collection of new friends from all over the country. Setoman is inhabited by the Seto people, in an area in the southeastern part of the country. Here, locavor and handmade is original and not manufactured as in Shoreditch in Brooklyn. Besides their protected culture, they also have their own kingdom and appointed a new king a few years ago, who happily rules this odd little patch of the world with utmost charm. I tried to get his counsel, but he was busy milking goats with no time for a New Yorker. Setos, listed by UNESCO as part of the world's intangible cultural heritage, live without the rest of the world for the most part. They have carved out their own vision and here live out of the dreams of their ethnic and linguistic minority, as they should. And not in that we hate the world, let's wear white sheets over our heads and only allow white people way. It's respectful and inclusive and beautiful. And their language, which is part of the Uralic languages, sounded less Russian, less Finnish, and definitely less Estonian to me. The generous and fascinating woman, dressed in red, embroidered long dresses, are everywhere and overly friendly, just about to enjoy a feast with anyone. 
So please bring your happiest self here, ready for anything. I was naturally invited to sit down at a long wooden table and indulge as much as possible in several pies stuffed with pretty much anything the land produces and enough potatoes to feed a small colony of lemurs. I think I may be still recovering from this meal. Of course, there's no fancy hotel here. You stay in a little cottage in a family's garden or you rent a tiny house on the lake all decked out in everything you may need and a loving family providing home-cooked meals. This is luxury. Sitting cross-legged with some locals around a fire, I silently listened to their local language. I wasn't understanding anything except that I think there was a meal being lovingly prepared. Another meal. The most maternal of the group, a beautiful older woman who had lived a whole life in Setomar, took my hand and started telling me a fable in her native language. She looked me in my eyes and said, you're either with nature or against nature. Life is that simple. The translation came from someone sitting next to me and I sat quietly mesmerized by the country's love for a simple life of pure sharing. The fable, as they do, taught me again to see the little magic in the simplest things and to heed wisdom when it comes to your nose. If the world could only see that religion won't help them, only nature can and shall. And that, I think, is real luxury. I'm going to pause this right here for a moment for our sponsors to weigh in. But do come back to hear more about where I've been scooting around this week. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. 
Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. You've just been somewhere. What say we go everywhere? Let's dive right in. With me today is Holly, a real connoisseur of luxury. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. I don't think of myself as a particularly luxury human, right? I mean, I'm pretty, like, relaxed and groovy. I don't need fancy things. Yeah, but that's the whole point. Like, you celebrate luxury in a way that's not the conventional way. I think of you the way that you luxuriate your life by sewing and making your home beautiful in ways that I think is very luxurious. It's very self-indulgent, which I think is luxurious Isn't in its it? own way. Like my husband and I always say that like we are grown-ups and we're defining what that is. So if we want to have a house that looks like a giant cartoon, that's fine and it's us. And to us that feels very luxurious. But that's about reclaiming luxury, right? right. It's about being like for instance, I think all travel is luxurious. The very idea that you could travel and get on an airplane or a boat or a mechanism that gets you from A to B, that's luxurious. Yeah. that Well, it's interesting because you get into a place very quickly of comparative luxury, right? Like if you traveled back to 1760 and you told someone how much you travel in a year, they would think you were a sorcerer. Right. Whereas now technology, and in some places, not everywhere, prosperity has led to a point where Things that we once thought luxurious, like traveling all over the world, are now much more accessible to a lot more people. Right. So a lot of these experts in luxury, and I have to use the air quotes there because that gets into a weird thing of like, how do you become an expert on luxury and what does that mean, right? The meaning shifts. A lot of their kind of predictions is that luxury has stopped being about acquiring a lot of things. It's much more about a bespoke experience that is yours and yours alone. Which is interesting because I think that's kind of more in line with what you want to reclaim, but I also know it will get commercialized. Right. Well, now everybody wants to have that experience. So it's a reproduction of that thing. Right. Whereas I have this theory that what you need to do is you need to fall in love with life and luxury for yourself will come from that. Like, I'll give you a perfect example. Michael and I went to La Paz Puerto Cortez, this incredible little place um, north of crazy Baja, California, Mexico. And the beauty of the whole thing was you could go down to the harbor, get a boat for hardly any money, and head out into the open gulf, basically, and see whale sharks and park off at a deserted island, really, which is like a remote nature reserve, park off, barbecue on the beach, fresh seafood, which you just caught yourself with no one around. Yeah. So that ties in with my whole thing about time, space and freedom. It was giving me all these things. And it ties into your thing about experiential. Like that is the experience. No one should want to replicate that. They should only want to go have their own version of that. And that's what makes it special. Because then you're in love with your life. That's the thing, too, that robs what could be luxury travel 
of its luxuriousness is it becomes a little bit performative. Right. I have these little things that I always tell people that that make travel more luxurious in a very personal way. For instance, you've been to many of my hotel rooms. I always bring my own little coffee setup, grinder, a little packet of beans, and a V60, so I can make coffee as if I'm at home. I can make any hotel room like that. Right. Or if I'm staying at a bad hotel, I take little spa goodies with me. Right. And it sounds silly, but... If I have an, a stick of incense, which I got from India, from the ashram, and maybe a candle and maybe some essential oils, suddenly my room becomes the essence of healing and wellness. And that's where luxury needs to be reclaimed from. Those things are luxurious. Like I've seen what you travel with. You you make home a nest. I do. Well, also, the, I'm messy, so it spreads out in like 12 seconds when I walk in the room. Right, so it looks nasty and comfortable. <laughs> like, I also travel with a kikoi always, and a kikoi is this thing from Africa. It comes from like an Indian slash African tradition of having a cloth, which is big. You can wear it. The Indians wear it like a lungi around their waist in the south of India. But in Kenya, kikois are like what African women would wear around their bodies. It's basically... A towel, a hair scarf, a neck scarf, a little bag. I was going to say, you can make it into a tote. And I always travel with one. Sometimes I, I have it so Ella has something to lie on. I put it on the plane to sit on. So the kikoi becomes this luxurious item from home. That item brings me home. Yeah. Anywhere I am on the road. I I'm thinking about, you You caused me to reflect on what, like, the most luxurious experience I have had is. And what keeps coming to mind is kind of surprising even to myself. Do tell. Right? Like, it's not a thing where I would be like, this is a luxury experience you have to have. Um, have you ever been to the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida? I have not. So, I went... Last year with two of my best friends, we just ran down there. The Museum of Fine Art there was doing an exhibit that we wanted to see about Star Wars costumes. Of course. Um, but we also wanted to hit the Dali Museum. And that museum is fascinating for many reasons. It's an, a wonderfully strange architectural achievement. But also, whether or not you love Salvador Dali and his work, it's a very interesting space. And in terms of how the docents tell his life story as they're leading people through the galleries, it's really lovely. But for me, the moment that keeps springing to my mind is when I first turned around this edge and saw in person for the first time the hallucinogenic Toreador, which is a painting. I mean, I a painting that will rock you back. One, it is massive, and there's always, like, just the, the very nuts and bolts kind of wonder of, like, how does anyone work at this scale? But two, I mean, that's just a painting that I really love anyway, and I had seen it reproduced many, many times. You know, it's got a lot of interesting visual things going on where things are not quite what they look like at first glance, and when you look deeper, you see multiple different things, and there are, you know, faces hidden in them, and but what felt very, what keeps jumping to my mind that felt luxurious about it is that I was very taken with it. And this, I am not what I would call a snooty art person. I don't need to know who painted it. I mean, I eventually want to find out. But if I see a piece of art that I connect to, it usually has nothing to do with knowing its history. Like, it's just visceral. It's like falling in love and standing before this painting, which is like immense. It's the size of a room. It's huge. Just 
I mean, I was almost frozen on the spot. And the greatest thing to me and what made it feel luxurious is that as I'm there and I'm gawking and I'm drinking it with my eyes, the docents that are leading tours around just keep, like, making sure that they lead their people and leave me a little space. Like, they're not moving me. They're not—they're just letting me be with that painting for, like, way longer than most people are going to stand there and look at it. And to me, I was like, this is— it felt very luxurious because, like, I was just being allowed, even in a space with a lot of other people, to just have my personal interaction with this thing that I was shocked at how deeply it moved me. So to me, that's like a moment of deep luxury. And it's not a particularly expensive trip. You know, it's just even if you put all of the pieces of, like, your travel down there, staying at a hotel for a couple of days— as trips go, I doubt people are like, this is my apex luxury trip. But to me, it was a very luxurious I love that, Holly. hour of my life. Well, that's the whole point. It's about finding ways to reclaim that yourself, which is exactly what you did there. And you didn't plan it, but in the moment, you were able to just accept that beauty. Right. I think like... That ties into this high and low thing that I've been thinking about in travel and talking about. If you live in the high, I understand that some people can only live in the low, right? Because yeah. you, you travel and you'd like to travel and you don't have money to do things that may cost extra money. But you can make that amazing. And as a traveler, I feel like I want to experience it all. Why must I only stay at the five-star hotel right. or only stay at the Airbnb? I think part of why I never quite feel completely at ease in, like, a fancy-pants unicorn accommodation is there's always, like, the voice of my father in the back of my head going, this is very wasteful. Oh, I don't have that. I just travel. I just travel <laughs> instead. Instead of feeling guilty, I just travel. My parents instilled that in me. There's nothing that inspires me more than just to travel. And it's not I get teased about loving beautiful hotels and fun things, but it's the people, it's everything. It's yeah. moving about the world and existing there that inspires me. And that's high and low. That's all the highs and all the lows. Yeah. I'm using high and low in an example of like the hotel versus the eating on the street. But it's the high and lows of the entire experience. There'll be beautiful highs where you're standing watching turtles lay their eggs on a beach somewhere so remote in Costa Rica. And then there'll be the low of driving through Cape Town to downtown and seeing the squatter camps. Right. But they part of travel. Yeah. Both those highs and lows need to exist for you in order for you to be able to understand the world. Right. Like if you only went to the high and you flew private and you only stayed at the fancy hotels behind the high walls, have you really traveled? No. Or if you only went to the slums of Brazil and hung out there. Could you really tell me that you understand Brazil? I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, you can lead an insulated life of highs, in which case you probably never appreciate the highs you're having. Or you can lead a life where you do both of these spaces and all of the myriad in between. But you also see that, again, I mean, I'm kind of a hippie, can you tell? That fundamentally, those... You are wearing a pantsuit with flowers on them. Are those daisies? <laughs> they are daisies. Yeah. But yeah, you those people living in less fortunate circumstances are still just humans. And you can see that if you travel in all of these places. Like, I think that's it, right? Like, you see the the united nature of humanity and you appreciate the gifts and the privileges you live with and experience, but in a way that also makes you appreciate 
the world in its entirety. Well, I have had this experience in India where I was driving by and I saw a woman on a street corner with her two kids literally sitting in the dirt with a cow next to them. And with my Western eye, I looked at them and thought, that must be difficult. And then she lifted her head and she was holding an ice cream that she was sharing with her kids. And she was beaming. She was smiling and the kids were laughing. And that for them was luxurious. They were sharing like a ice cream cone that cost a penny. And they turned it into something so magical. And they were happier than what I was. And I could see it. I looked at them and I laid on all my privilege and they looked happier. And I'm not suggesting that, yeah, that it must There's inherent hardship to it. I understand. Yeah. But in that moment, in that one exact moment, she had more happiness than I had had. Now for a slight respite. And I'll be right back with Everywhere after a word from our sponsors. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Welcome once again to Everywhere. Let's hop back to it. Hello again. I'm with Emily Davis from Counterculture Coffee. If you're tired of listening to me talk about coffee, well, too bad. Emily Davis is the coffee teacher we all need. Thanks for coming into studio with us today in Atlanta. Emily's pouring us a little coffee. Do tell us. We are brewing up a honey-processed coffee from Kenya. 
And the honey process is a really interesting process. So I would say probably 99.9% of the coffee you've had in your life has been a wash process, which is when you remove the cherry skins from the seeds. Coffee beans, that's a misnomer. It's actually a seed. It's not really a bean. So you remove the cherry as quickly as you can, and then you wash off all the mucilage, let that dry, and, and that's your typical washed coffee. What we're doing with this is instead of washing all that mucilage off, we're letting it stay and ferment a little bit longer. So you're going to get some more honey characteristics, some more fruit characteristics than you would in a normal wash process. This is the thing that I do when I travel. Before I go to a city, I type in the words pour over coffee and then enter city now. But that's usually my way of finding like-minded people that I would probably want to spend time with. It's like an easy way into a city. Mm -hmm. Some people do Irish pubs, right? They go all over the world and they find an Irish pub. This is my version of that. I find the pour over coffee and it enters me into a world which I think could be familiar. Tell me how counterculture fits into that philosophy. Yeah, you're looking for that because you're looking for people who are paying a little bit more attention. They're spending a little bit more time. They care a little bit more than just pushing a button and getting a product. So counterculture goes above and beyond in many ways, much to the chagrin of even our importers. Our standards are very high and meticulous about how we source our coffee and how it's processed and um, the way that it scores and the way that it brews and roasts and putting all that attention to every little detail, I think makes us a good match. We're often in cafes that are spending more time brewing their coffee than just hitting a button, just trying to service people in and out, you know, but also trying to offer them an experience that translates. It translates to the cup. It really does. So in Milan, one of the interesting things that I found when I typed in the words pour over coffee was a tiny little shop in the southwestern part of Milan, which is not a touristy section of the city. And it was four sisters that broke off from one of the most famous Italian coffee families from the south of Italy and started this independent third wave coffee company where they promote the idea of better coffee. I always talk about how bad the coffee is in Italy and how I'm such an advocate for getting the Italians to do better coffee. Mm -hmm. Italians think that it's okay to pay 80 cents or one euro for a cup of coffee. And the conversation they're having is, if you're paying so little for coffee, how much is the thinker, the farmer, actually receiving? How is it possible that you're getting a quality product at a price like that? I love the culture of Italian coffee mm -hmm. because it's communal. And it's only in Europe where the sidewalk cafe chairs face outwards, mm -hmm. right? So the idea is that you're taking in people and the landscape and what's happening on the streets. Mm -hmm. So why is the coffee so bad <laughs> in both Italy and France? Oh, there could be numerous reasons for that. But to speak a little bit to what you're saying about paying a dollar and asking yourself, like, well, how much does the person who makes it get? You know, when you're in Italy and France, you're typically paying 90 cents for a cup of coffee, which you can find that here, too. But it is, it's an important question to ask, and it's very near to counterculture's ethos, thinking about the sea price, the market price for coffee and how it's dipped below a dollar recently. And that is a very tragic thing because you know that the producers are not making a living wage. Counterculture has kind of, we've been doing this for 25 years and we've kind of set the bar for um, sourcing transparently and sourcing fairly and to where people are actually not, you know, everybody on the supply chain is being taken care of and they are making a living wage. That, that is a paramount value of ours.
So I think I think people love the pomp and circumstance of going to get a pour over because the barista is extending themselves to you. They are part of what you're getting. They're not just delivering a cup of coffee to you, but they're extending a service. They're engaged in what they're doing. And I think that that's part of what, when you're traveling, getting to slow down and watch somebody engage in what it is that they're making you. I think there's something beautiful about that. It is artistic. It's I call it my zen zone when I'm making a pour over. Just getting really involved in and focusing on this thing that I know I'm going to thoroughly enjoy. And you can pay, you know, four or five dollars for an incredible coffee at a cafe and get a pour over that's brewed specifically just for you. It hasn't been sitting in an urn for who God knows how long. <laughs> it's brewed specifically for you. It's less than a glass of wine, and you're still having this incredible experience that you can sit down and enjoy and rest and like engage maybe with somebody or maybe just by yourself and soaking in what it is that you're there to see in whatever city that you're in. Um, And it's nice that you can kind of get it anywhere. Nice. Yeah. So the idea of keep holy, the high and low, the travel commandment is really about there's Michelin star restaurants and then there's eating on the street and they're equally amazing. Yes. Let's talk about how coffee fits into both those things, how coffee is both high and low. Mm -hmm. So the origin of, when you think about the origin of coffee culture is Ethiopia, Ethiopian coffee ceremonies. That's how coffee culture began. And I love talking about this specifically because in Ethiopian coffee ceremonies, it was always the woman of the village who made the coffee for everyone. It was her job. It was her honor to get to do that for everyone. And it really involved taking green coffee seeds and roasting it over fire all in one sitting and then crushing them up with a mortar and pestle and then pouring boiling water on it and then just pouring the cups for everyone in a jabena, out of a jabena, and rebrewing the same grounds. So that sounds horrible to people like us who are like, I want my, you know, filter coffee pour over. I would prefer a Chemex, blah, blah, blah. But you think about that and it's still such a beautiful experience because everything is handcrafted. Everything is paid attention to by somebody who feels like it's an honor to do this for you, to host this for you. And so when you think about that being how coffee drinking began, like that's the culture of coffee, it's still to this day. People want to sit down and drink coffee together. And um, however you do it, whether it's in a French press or, you know, roasting it on a fire with this tiny little two-sip beverage that you're considering coffee that's really strong or, or espresso if you're in Italy and it's just fast like, you know, a train stop, all of those different experiences originate from that culture of like sitting down. It's an honor for me to do this for you. And it's just beautiful. That is beautiful. I love that. When I met my husband... We had our first sleepover, and it was at his apartment in Yorkville, which he called the nosebleed of Manhattan. <laughs> and I remember waking up, I'm an early riser at six or something o'clock in the morning, and it was a Saturday morning, and he was clearly going to sleep in. And I didn't know his behavior, morning behaviors yet. So I sneaked to his kitchen, and I started opening up some cupboards, and I find a giant tin of already ground coffee from the supermarket. Next to that, I found the standard Mr. Coffee coffee machine and a pack of 500,000 filters. (laughs) And I looked at this situation and I thought by myself, I could still run. Like, I still have the opportunity to get out because I don't think I could date someone who doesn't care about coffee. 
So I had this moment where I stood in the kitchen and I looked at these items with such judgment. And then I thought, no, Daniel, you don't want to be that judgmental person. It's not who you really are. So I sneaked down. It's now maybe seven o'clock in the morning. I was trawling the streets of the Upper East Side and I found a small coffee shop that was setting up for the day. And I bought a Hario Japanese hand grinder, a tiny V60 ceramic pour over and some filters. And I bought beans and I went back to his apartment. And when he woke up, I said to him, so if this is going to work, this is how you're going to have to drink coffee. And he laughed at me and I told him how and he changed the way he saw coffee for the first time. So he was a good New Jersey Italian boy whose mother would go to the big box grocery store and stock him up with coffee for the month. This was his introduction to coffee. That's amazing. So I have a plane to catch, but if you'd still like to reach us, go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, Everywhere Pod on Twitter, or the website at everywherepodcast.com. Thanks for hanging out. I'm Daniel Scheffler, and I'll see you everywhere. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.